The word of the Lord from John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8 and 19 through 28. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. John the Baptist is an honest confessor of the faith. He may not be the most straightforward, but he's honest. We find him in Bethany across the Jordan where he's baptizing sinners with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Word gets around and all of Judea and Jerusalem are making the trip at least to see and hear him. Among those who come are some men sent by the Pharisees, and they're on a mission to find out who this John character is. The easiest thing to do is to ask him, and so they do. They ask him, who are you? To which he responds with who he is not, namely, I am not the Christ. See, honest, yes. Straightforward, no. He's going to stretch this out for a while, letting them narrow the possibilities by making all the wrong guesses. I'm honestly not sure if he's doing this to yank their chain because they ought to know better, or if this is just the way his mind works. At any rate, they ask him, Are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. Are you the prophet? Again, the answer is no. Exasperated, they demand, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Finally, John tells them. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. It might still sound a little vague and elliptical, 
but it's a super helpful answer. The men who have been hounding him weren't far off the mark. He's not Elijah and he's not the prophet, but he is a prophet. He is the prophet prophesied by the prophet Isaiah, the voice who would cry out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's so much the last of the Old Testament prophets that he gets pushed out of the Old and into the New Testament. But it's not because the Old Testament ran out of room. It's because John's role as a prophet is to make straight the way of the Lord. In other words, unlike all the prophets who have gone before him and said that the Messiah will come someday, John is a prophet so close to the Messiah's coming that he gets to say, prepare for the Messiah because he has come. It's no coincidence that he's preaching in Bethany across the Jordan. In Old Testament speak, across the Jordan means the wilderness as opposed to the promised land. When Israel arrived at the Jordan River after 40 years of wilderness, Moses died and Joshua took over as leader. Before him, the Lord parted the Jordan River and the Israelites crossed from wilderness into Canaan. Now, John the Baptist is washing sinners with water for repentance and forgiveness. The Messiah is about to appear, and he is going to lead his people out of the wilderness of this world into the promised land of the kingdom of heaven. And it might be a coincidence that if you translate the name Joshua into Greek, you get the name Jesus. Nah, that's not a coincidence at all. Anyways, John is doing what a preacher should do. He's bearing witness to the light. He's preaching the Christ and pointing out the need for him with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's making straight the way of the Lord, preparing his path for his arrival. In fact, there's this great little nugget in the back and forth between John and the Pharisees' men. They're questioning John in front of a big crowd of people since all of Judea and Jerusalem have gone out to him. As they ask John who he is, John answers and says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. There are three incredible revelations in that sentence. First, Do the math. John is preparing the way of the Lord, so the one who comes after John would be the Lord himself. Second, the one who comes after John is there. John declares, among you stands one you do not know. The Messiah is so close to arriving when John is preaching that he has arrived. He's there. He's standing in the crowd. Third, and this is also astonishing, as he stands among them, they do not know him. The long-awaited Christ has arrived, and he's standing in the crowd with them, and they cannot pick him out. He doesn't glow in the dark. He doesn't stand a foot taller and wider than everybody else. 
He doesn't have a nimbus of glory behind his head like you see in icons. The Messiah is there with them, and they cannot pick him out. He looks like, just like all those miserable sinners who have come to be baptized by John. So, how do they find out who the Messiah is? This is where I've got to pick a rare fight with a lectionary committee that put these readings together. I know it's Advent, but they still should have added just one more verse to the reading because John 1 verse 29 is the punchline. It says, The next day, he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So how do they find out who the Messiah is, that one in the midst of the crowd? The preacher reveals him by preaching, by speaking the word. The voice points to the word made flesh. Since Jesus looks like everybody else, John preaches that he's the Christ. And hearing this faith-giving word, some will believe and some will not. It's pretty significant that Jesus already looks so ordinary. But what does John call him? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't call him the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Doesn't call him the T-Rex of God or some other powerful apex predator. He calls him the Lamb of God who takes away sin. And how do lambs take away sin? They get sacrificed. They get their blood shed. Soak it all in. John declares that the ordinary-looking Jesus is, in fact, the Christ who is going to have his blood shed to take away the sin of the world. And because he's come and he's going to die, John isn't worthy even to untie his sandals. Until he comes again in glory, Jesus still comes humbly. That's the marvel of the means of grace, right? You are gathered here by the work of the Holy Spirit, confident that Jesus is just as present here as when he stood in the crowd by the River Jordan. This is a confidence of faith, certainly not of sight. You believe it to be true because God's word declares it to be true. In fact, let's imagine for a moment that some men sent from the Pharisees show up here because while there may not be many official Pharisees wandering the streets of the Boise bench, there are plenty of folks who believe that they get to heaven by doing enough good works and who could dearly learn the grace of their Savior. So imagine that they wander in and sit down next to you and they ask you if you're the Messiah. You politely make clear that you are not, but that you are here because Jesus is here. They express some surprise and look around for Jesus, and they come up empty. So you tell them, see that font? Whenever someone is baptized, Jesus is there. Hear that word? Whenever we hear God's word, Jesus is there. See that altar? Whenever we go to the Lord's Supper, Jesus is there. 
This is actually, by the way, what you're doing with the liturgy each Sunday. Each part of the liturgy that you say and sing announces the truth that Christ is not merely up in heaven, bending an ear towards our insufficient noises of praise down below. Each part declares that Jesus is present, though unseen, in his word and sacraments. In this respect, you're like John the Baptist. You declare, I am not the Christ. We call that the confession of sins. And you declare that Jesus is present to be gracious and merciful. In fact, you even use John's words as part of it. Just before Holy Communion, when the elements are consecrated and Jesus is present in with an under bread and wine, you look toward the altar as if he's there, because he is, and you pray, O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. Now, you're going to run into a lot of skeptical people who say it's ridiculous that Jesus would visit this way. So just remember that it looked a little ridiculous for John to point out one unremarkable-looking man out of the crowd and declare him to be the Christ. Remember, too, that the reason God's works seem so ridiculous is not because they are, but because your old sinful nature wants them to be. In other words... If God declared that he would arrive at church with an earthquake, dwell as a hovering ball of fire by the altar, and zap you with lightning bolts of forgiveness, your sinful nature would say, that's ridiculous. What sort of God feels the need to show off like that? God comes humbly and mercifully for you. By the way... Your life as a Christian is like this too. It's humble and unremarkable, but incredibly blessed. That makes sense as long as you're good with following in the steps of the Messiah who goes humbly about his work by saving and by suffering. Sure, he's glorious after he rises from the dead. And you will be too when he raises you. But on this side of the grave... Your life is a humble sort of sacrificial life that often doesn't feel particularly even spiritual. It's easy to imagine running into people who say, as a Christian, I want to serve God. What should I do? And so you point them to today's epistle from 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. In other words, in whatever callings God has given, hear his word, rejoice and pray, avoid sin and do good to those around you. At which point, a surprisingly large number of people will say, Yes, but what do I do? All this sounds so humdrum and ordinary. But you see, service to a humble God and in His name is surprisingly ordinary and humble much of the time. 
I mention this because there are a lot of Christians who bear false guilt because they're just going about their lives, fulfilling their responsibilities, and they feel like they're doing nothing for God when in fact their lives are full of God-pleasing works. And I mention this because there are a lot of Christians who avoid a lot of good works because the works seem too humble to be God-pleasing. On this Sunday of joy, though, rejoice! The Lord God of Sabaoth, holy and almighty, chooses to work among you humbly and mercifully in order to save you by his own blood. In your life of humble service, you then reflect his mercy to others. I said before that John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet, and this is true. I suppose we could also say that he is the first New Testament preacher because he preaches while the incarnate Jesus is present to save. So it is today. As we are gathered here by the Holy Spirit, the incarnate Christ is present in his means of grace. The Lamb of God is here to take away your sins so that you might have life and light in his name. And that is reason for joy indeed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.